Thanks for tuning in to the Lean 911 podcast where you'll have a voice directly from the Gemba. I will rely on my three decades of lean successes as well as my failures to answer your most challenging questions regarding your lean transformation. I'm your host, Mark Deluzio, President and CEO of Lean Horizons Consulting and the Principal Architect of the Danaher Business System. Looking forward to your questions now. Let's go to the Gemba. Today, I want to talk to you about the lean mindset. People say, well, geez, you know, what is the lean mindset? So many people have told me over the years that lean is fundamentally about common sense. I guess in a way you can kind of say it is, but there's a lot of things about lean that are not common sense because it challenges the traditional way we've done business for most of our adult lives. And, you know, many executives have gotten to positions of power through very traditional methodologies and means. What does that mean? That means that if they want to continue on a lean transformation, they're going to need to rethink those traditional ways. And sometimes those changes are really tough to do for somebody who's already, you know, checked the box and got success in terms of their career, their position, their power, and all that. So in a lot of ways, the power that you receive as a leader has to now be transferred to the people and have faith that your success is going to be generated from the success of everybody that you're overseeing, you know, as a leader. So I want to talk about these concepts. I'm going to go maybe into some specific details about how sometimes this is very counterintuitive to most people who address, you know, a lean transformation. They want to get going on a lean transformation. Now, the very first thing that I'm told when I get a call from a CEO or I go to a new company is that we're different. And they usually preface that by saying, I know we're not supposed to say we're different. And I know we're really not, but there's always that but. Let me tell you why we're different. And they'll go on and tell me that their business is seasonal and that they are make to order and that they're custom, that their customers call them at the last minute and they, you know, they give me all the reasons why they're different. Most of those reasons are true. They are different in that regard, but they're also different from the respect that they're not performing at world-class levels. So there's a difference that we maybe need to, you know, pay more attention to than why are you different? Because many times the mantra of we're different means this isn't going to work for us because we don't make cars. We're not Toyota. We don't make automobiles. I actually had a insurance CEO tell me that one day, Mark, you have to understand we don't make cars. And I said to him, thank God you don't, because if you did, I wouldn't drive in one. Okay. I mean, their processes were a mess. And, you know, I went on to say that, look, I'm not trying to, you know, dispel any notion of how difficult insurance is, but you don't have a supply chain. If you were to make a car, you'd have to figure out how to get, I don't know, what's in a car, 17, 18, 20,000 different part numbers together at the same point in time to make an automobile. That alone, and oh yeah, by the way, they have to be in the right quantity, 
the right quality. You have to manage your cash flow, all that kind of stuff, right? So not to say that, you know, actuarial science isn't complicated and underwriting and all that, you know, manufacturing is probably one of the more difficult businesses you could be in and to be successful at it, it's very difficult. So yeah, you are different. Everybody's different, but now what are you going to do about it? The thing that people miss, I think with lean is they think about all the classic tools. They think about standard work. Oh, geez, you know, standard work won't apply to us because we're a custom shop and we don't see the same thing twice. Okay. Does that mean you don't have waste? A Kanban doesn't work because we order our parts specifically to an order. We don't need, you know, all, all these parts are very specific. Uh, our lead times are really long. Well, geez, why are they long? Right. But you look at all the reasons why they'll look at the various aspects of lean and they'll surmise that and it doesn't apply to us because we're not that we're not Toyota. We're not, we don't make cars. But what they miss is this, the principles apply, whether you're running a lemonade stand, whether you're making jet engines, doing insurance, fracking, logging, oh, these are all industries I've worked in, okay. Pharmaceutical, all kinds of manufacturing, aerospace, automotive, oil and gas. I, I might go down the list of the different industries, financial services that I've worked in. And when you look at the principles, I have not yet found one business. I've worked on five continents, 45 countries. I've never run across one business in the 30 plus years I've been doing this where the principles didn't apply. And the first thing you have to ask yourself is, do you have waste in your business? And if the answer is yes, then that means lean applies. It's as simple as that. So many times people say to me, you know, you know, Mark, what do you do? You know, what do you do for a living? What's this lean horizons? You run a weight loss clinic. Is that what that does? And in a way I say, oh yeah, kind of, we do run a weight loss. We try to take waste out and we try to take the extra burden of weight called waste out of the system, but they don't really understand what this is all about. So I make it very simple. I say, look. How many people, how, do you ever buy furniture? Most people would say, yes, I bought furniture. Okay. How long does it take to make that dining room table that you just ordered? And I'll give you a guess. They'll say, you know, geez, you know, 10 hours, 20 hours, two days, whatever they give you. And he asks, well, why did they tell you it's going to take 12 weeks? And the first thing they default to, oh, that's the transportation because it's coming from China. Well, no, it doesn't take 12 weeks to ship it from China. So why does it take 12 weeks? So what I tell people is my job is to take the waste out and actually take those 12 weeks and get those as close to the 10 hours as possible. That's what I do for a living. And by the way, when you do that, a lot of good things are going to happen. to you. You're going to grow your business. I've done this in commodity businesses where we more than tripled the volume because we were the best guy in the market in terms of lead time. Our distributors didn't need to hold the product. Lead time, quality, speed, delivery, responsiveness. Even in the commodity industry, you're able to get price 
because you're the best guy out there. Matter of fact, when you sit down at the table and negotiate, you've got something more to negotiate with than just price. So the power of lead time reduction, great quality, responsiveness, on-time delivery, very positive business impact. Now, one of the other things that people looked at, and again, I get this call all the time, they say, well, you know, we want to reduce our cost. Well, who doesn't, right? Everybody wants to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's no, and, you know, that is one of the reasons why we want to do lean is to reduce our costs. But why do we want to reduce our costs? To make more money? Yeah, of course we do. But we want to provide job security. We want to be able to provide a sustaining, ongoing business. That we're not going to ship it to Asia because we think it's cheaper there to do business. And by the way, that's another mindset shift because it's not. I know how to do the math. I've done the math. And most CFOs don't know how to do the math. And neither the CEOs. It makes no sense whatsoever. I could tell you right now, I've done the math many times. It makes no sense whatsoever. Ship your product and manufacture it in China. And ship it back to the United States for domestic consumers. It makes absolutely no sense at all. And I'm not talking about because of the transportation costs. I'm talking about all the things that go along with the logistics, but also the fact that when you're the long lead time guy, you're not going to grow your business. Somebody else is going to figure out how to do it quicker, even if the people in China work for nothing. So anyway, that's a mindset shift. And hopefully we're going to, you know, maybe get onto that and start learning a little bit better what it really means to make it here, make it domestically to serve your current, you know, market base. But they talk about cost reduction. I know a lot of businesses that all they focus on, you know, we have this whole mantra that I developed at Danaher called safety, quality, delivery, cost. In that order, it's a pecking order. It's a hierarchy. You basically say, look, I'm not going to compromise safety for anything. It doesn't matter. By the way, safety isn't only physical safety, it's emotional safety as well. We can get into that some other day when we have a module or a podcast on respect for people. That will be a topic of discussion. But then you get into quality, which is next, and then delivery, lead time and all that, and then cost, right? And when you look at the quality, I will never ship, because of a delivery commitment, a bad quality product. That's why quality is higher on the totem pole than uh, delivery. And oh, yeah, by the way, if I'm late on a delivery, I'm going to airship it for the sake of you know, hurting my cost position because delivery is more important than cost. But if we do all the things right, we'll get cost, we'll get profitability, we'll get repeat business, we'll get happy customers. If we do all things right, so many executives, that's all they focus on. I know one company, that's all they do is PowerPoint after PowerPoint of let's look at how we did on cost. Well, to me, that's analogous to kind of looking at your scale when you want to lose weight. You can focus on the pounds all you want, but that's not going to get it for you. You got to focus on the inputs. What about calories, nutrition, exercise, all those things that go into losing weight? Am I sleeping well? That type of thing. And when I lose weight, all those metrics get better. By the way, my blood pressure, my cholesterol, my sleep happiness seems to go away. My clothes fit better. I look better. I feel better. That's the same thing with lead time. Take lead time, take the waste out and reduce your lead time, you'll be surprised how well your business functions. 
And oh yeah, by the way, at the end of the day, I'll get cost out of it. Okay. So we focus so much on the scale, if you will, or the cost that we miss the drivers that really drive this, especially quality, especially the cost of poor quality, which by the way, will be a separate podcast down the line about what that really means and how important quality is to the overall picture. Oh yeah, well, Mark, you're a big lean guy and you're telling me that quality is important. Who doesn't know that? But so many companies do not focus on quality or if they do, they're only looking at quality as it relates to products and did it make meet the spec and all that kind of stuff. How about this? Ask your company, how do we define a defect? And the first thing they'll tell you, most likely the engineers in particular, the quality guys are going to tell you, well, it's when our product doesn't meet our specifications or our tolerance and all that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Or, we, or maybe they're defects that they get returned from a customer, maybe warranty return. Okay. We got all that. How else do we define quality? That's a mindset shift. How about every time there's an engineering change order, it's a defect. People will say, oh, I want to get really good at handling engineering change orders. No, I want to eliminate engineering change orders. I want to eliminate calls to a technical support center because when they call, they're not calling to say we did a great job. They call because they have a problem. So let's look at those problems on a Pareto basis and eliminate the reasons why people are calling us to begin with. The whole mindset shift. Okay. A lot of times we just accept the fact that people are going to call us with problems. We accept that we're going to have ECOs, engineering change orders, and things like that. We accept the fact that we're going to have warranty and we get really good at processing warranty returns, but we never focus on the root cause of the issue. That's a mindset shift. Okay. The other mindset shift is the more standardized you become as a business, the more fundamental processes you have the more flexible you become. And this is a mind trip for guys in sales, if you will, because they think, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be, my creativity is going to be limited with all this standardization. Really? No, that's not true. That's not true at all. But it's a paradox. I mean, my friend, Steve Spears, who wrote Decoding the DNA, by the way, if you haven't read that article, it was printed in the mid nineties. It's still relevant today. Decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system out of Harvard. Steve Spears and I forget his partner's name wrote that article. It's a great article and take a look at it because he talks about these paradoxes in the Toyota production system. Okay. Now, one of the problems that we've had is that we, you know, many people look at people and people cost as something they got to eliminate people, eliminate headcounts. And Lean got that black guy that basically says, Lean means less employees are needed, L-E-A-N, okay? And no, that's not what we want to do. Any idiot can lay off people. Any leader, don't have to be a brilliant leader to lay a bunch of people off to reduce your cost. The real genius is how do you take the people you've got, harness their energy, and grow your business? So many people, you did a really great job with lean. You leaned out the company. Well, wait a minute, you leaned out the company. Just laid off 30,000 people. How's that lean? Oh yeah, by the way, how am I going to get other people to buy in now to make an improvements that make, might make them redundant, especially if I'm not going to offer a no layoff policy due to lean improvements. A lot of leaders don't have the guts to do that. That's easy to be that leader. Art Byrne, who 
part of hiring me at Danaher back in 1987. Actually, he wrote the forward to my book. He's a good friend, good mentor. But he ran wire mold. He made that commitment to his people. No layoffs due to lean improvements. We're going to get so good at lead time and quality and delivery. We're going to grow the heck out of this business. That's exactly what he did. He grew the heck out of wire mold. And they were very successful. One of the best lean transformation stories, I think, in the United States. So we don't want to do that. Now, when we started working with the Japanese back in 87, especially my, my, my mentor, Nakao Inawata, they both could not understand American mindset. And again, this is another mindset issue here. They couldn't understand why we would say we know how to do that, but we can demonstrate it. That was, I think it was a cultural thing, right? But they could not understand why we would do that. How could you say, you know, this, if you can't do it, he came into my business one day and I wanted him to work on, I forgot what it was, TPM and SMED or whatever. Lucio said, we need to work on standard work. How the cow, I know standard work. Come on. I know how to, I can even do time observation studies. By myself, I don't even need a partner. That's how good I am with the stopwatch and recording times. And I know how to do process capacity sheets. I know how to do operator load charts, standard work combination sheets, how to use tech time in all different ways, right? Those yells on come with me. We look at one of my cells. We had all our standard work posted, which by the way, I hardly ever see anybody do post their standard work. Parker Hannaford does it by the way. But I haven't seen a lot of companies do it. And I walked it. He walked up to my standard worksheet and says, Delusio, son, how many people on your standard worksheet? And I said, five, excuse me. And he said, how many people in your cell? I looked at it and I said, no, eight. Delusio, son, you do not know standard work. Okay. This is back way back when in the Jake break days when I was, you know, young and thought I knew everything. And it was easy to see that I didn't. All right. So Nikal could not understand how I could say I do standard work when I couldn't demonstrate the practice of standard work. You think about that when somebody says, yeah, I know how to do that. Show me. Right. Now, one of the other, you know, counterintuitive things, and a lot of this has to do with lean accounting, which may be a subject for another day, but I'm going to bring some of that thinking into why, you know, I've been known as father of lean accounting. I think I wrote the first lean accounting system in, in the late eighties. And one of the measures that we would have in, in, in the, your traditional cost accounting would be indirect to direct labor ratio, or I should say direct to indirect labor ratio. And you want to kind of eliminate the indirect labor because everybody had this notion that direct labor was value adding. The other one's putting the product together and indirect labor is not doing that. And there are waste of time and we got to just eliminate, reduce and eliminate as much as we can. Well. I thought about that. And first of all, the notion that there's no waste in direct labor is wrong. We know there is, even though it's part of a standard operation, let's say with standard work, there's still waste in that process, right? For example, if an operator is reaching for a part, that's waste. Even though it's documented in standard work as part of their work sequence. But then I thought about, you know, using analogies. Real life examples is a really good way to think about me sometimes. And in this case, I look at NASCAR. Or Formula One, if you're in Europe or Indy 500, any kind of racing, the pit crew is all indirect. The only direct labor operator in a auto race is the driver. 
But why don't we get rid of the pit crew because indirect labor is not value added, right? Why don't we have the driver come out and change his own tires? Why don't we have the driver, you know, fill his tank up with gas? Think about that. So in that case, yeah, you want to be very efficient with your indirect labor. Japanese would call them water spiders, where they would kind of, you know, milk run type of thing and supplying parts and taking away parts and tooling and whatever the operator needs. But the real key is when you set up standard work, I talk about this in my standard work webinar, operators should operate. There's nothing else but operate, right? And many people don't get that. They think they're being productive when they send an operator away to go get tooling or go pick up materials. How's that? That's like taking that race car driver. See, by the way, go change your own tires. And well, yeah, while you're at it, the, the tires are up in the back rack in the garage. Why don't you go get those? Well, and we'll wait for you, right? It doesn't work. And that's not the, that's not the game. So this whole mindset about production and being, being like a race, like a, a, an auto race is very relevant. As a matter of fact, a lot of companies that come out of very technical products are still in this skunk works mindset, especially, you know, really talented engineers and scientists, they don't see the production aspect of what they do. They're still in this laboratory type of mindset. They never really get into a nice flow of production, which is a problem, especially in really highly technical products. So think about the direct and indirect. Now I talked about value added and not value added, another misnomer. I cringe when I hear people say, value added is only what the customer will pay for. Really? Okay. So that must mean we can eliminate all the non-value added, right? No, we can't. Does that mean that the payroll process that cuts your paycheck is not value added? Why would the customer want to pay for that? They don't care. Would that mean that your safety program and the people running your safety program is not value added. Would that mean that, geez, you know, design engineers don't sell the product. They don't make the product. So this whole notion of value adding is only what the customer is willing to pay for is bull. I like to look at it this way. First of all, people are not non-value added. Okay. That's one thing. Two, in any operation, I don't care what it is, you've got value added and non-value-added elements. As a matter of fact, there's been some studies done that says that over 90% of any activity is non-value-added relative to waste. And the real value-add is only that, you know, six or 7%. But people are not non-value-added. And, and so I don't like to look at this notion of, well, if the customer's not gonna pay for it, you're not value-added. That basically eliminates 80% of the organization right there. And that's not the way to treat people. That's not how you refer to them. I hear this all the time. Oh, their accountants, they don't add any value. Really? You ever run a company without an accountant? Good luck with that. As a matter of fact, it's a good way to get into jail. Leadership, non-value added because they don't put the product together. Really? Oh, wow. That's interesting. They're the ones that raised the capital. They're the ones that uh, bought the equipment, took the risk on the building, went and got the bank loans so that you could put your product together, you know? So you know, this whole notion about people being non-value-added, I reject that notion right off the bat. Whether you're a leader, supervisor, an administrator, it doesn't matter to me. The whole notion that it's what the customer will 
pay for is bull. Just remember this. People appreciate machines depreciate. That's another notion that a lot of people don't get. Right? I mean, if you treat your people right and you train them and give them the opportunity to advance, they will appreciate in value to you and to them. Right? One last thought here is on this section with, with people is the, I hear it all the time, a very CEO of a big company comes out and says, our customers are number one focus. I went to Honda years ago and they said, no, our people are number one. And then it's the customer and then it's the shareholder in that order. Because if we don't take care of our people, they won't take care of the customer. If you don't take care of your customer, you're not going to take care of your shareholder, right? So I've developed a white paper called the Lean Trilogy. And what that says is employees, customers, and shareholders all need to win. Now, there are other stakeholders besides those three. I got that. You know, there's the environment, there's your community, there's your supply base. So in respect for people who even talks about their competition as being a stakeholder. I got all that, but those three, employees, customers, shareholders, all need to have a win-win proposition. It can't be a zero-sum game. Everybody must win. Now, everybody, you know, thinks that, but if you don't know what exactly it is that those constituents want, how do you know they've won? If you don't ask them and don't ask them how they expect to get measured. You might think shareholders want shareholder return. Yeah, of course they do. However, they may want something else. They may want a company that promotes the environment, for example, okay, or some other cause. So you don't always know if you don't ask, especially employees. We all think we know what employees want. And we've all been burned in that regard too, right? When I was the general manager of the, Hino, of the Asian business for Jake Brake, Hino Motors is one of my major customers, which by the way, Hino is the big truck manufacturer in Japan that's owned by Toyota. They are very demanding and a phenomenal company. Learned a lot from them. Anyway, I was shipping Jake Brakes to Hino Motors 100% on-time delivery to their request date. 100% quality, no defects on the line, and zero warranty. I mean, I knocked it out of the park. It was the first 3P project we did, Moonshine project we did with Nakao, and I believe it was the first one in the United States. And that line that we set up, that cell that we set up for Hino Motors was second to none, not only within Jake Brake, but within Danaher. I mean, we had to really work hard to even make a defect, right? It's something pokey oaks we had and Judoka devices and all that. Anyway, so I went over to Hino Motors and I said, man, they're going to roll out the red carpet for me. They're going to have all kinds of sake parties for me and all kinds of things, right? I walk in there. I walk into the purchasing office and the purchasing office for the diesel engine. And they had a big chart on the wall from one to 110. They had 110 suppliers ranked from the best to the worst. I looked up at that chart expecting to see my name. I said, well, geez, you know, my name's got to be up there because 100% quality, 100% on-time delivery, blah, 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 blah. I looked up there, I didn't see my name. Then I, then dummy me, I said, well, geez, you know, it's all written in kanji characters. So that must be me up there somewhere in the top two, at least, maybe three. And that's why I can't read my name. Well, as I, my, my eyes gazed down this big list, it was on the side of the wall, it was ceiling to floor. 
I gazed down, I looked at, and I saw Jacob's break number 106 out of 110. At least, I guess I paid four guys out. And I said, well, geez, okay. What's that all about, right? I get into the meeting that morning. Who's your thought? No, you are number 106. Let me tell you why. The label that you put it on your cartons and you ship them to us are always in a different spot. Now they were all generally in the same upper right-hand corner. They said sometimes they were a quarter of an inch down from the top, sometimes an eighth of an inch, half an inch, over from the left, from the right, you know. I go, wait a minute. That doesn't affect form, fit, or function. That was my dumb argument. And they said to me, Delicioson, if you can't guarantee the quality outside the box, how can you guarantee the quality inside the box? And that just blew me away. Okay. Mindset, right? Different mindset. Oh, yeah, by the way, 100% quality, 100% delivery were just entrees to get into the dance with these guys. That wasn't no, nothing special. That was just, you know, something you had to do. But these are the kind of things I looked at. And it got me down to 106. There's actually one other thing, too. One other thing was I didn't, we didn't respond fast enough because of the 12 hour time difference. But those two things knocked me down to 106. That's how good that list was. And you think about it, I never asked the customer what they expected. I assumed it was quality and delivery. The lead time. That's what I assumed. Oh yeah, I was right. I was also wrong. So never think you know unless you ask. Getting back to the lean trilogy, you really know what your employees want. Have you asked them? And do you measure it? And do you get regular feedback? Like a great place to work score type of thing? How about your customers? How about your shareholders? Right? Now when it comes to mindset. There's a lot of things on the manufacturing floor that just, you know, blow people away sometimes. When the car would come up to us and say, that machine's running too fast, you need to slow it down. We initially, when we first started working with them, looked at them like he had three heads. Are you kidding me? We've got to slow the machine down. That, that wasn't in our DNA. Always thought we had to make more, especially the old traditional IE studies. Everybody says lean and standard worker like IE. No, it's not like IE studies. Way different than that because... We're not trying to optimize an operation. We're trying to make product to tack time. Okay. And if you don't know what that is, it's the rate that you have to meet. You know, if you tack time 60 seconds, I have to get a part out every 60 seconds, to meet my demand. Right. And if that machine is running at 45 seconds, then it's running, it's running too fast. Then the guy would say, you have to slow it down. You can't run it. You can't run it 60, you know, at 60 seconds. So uh, I'm sorry, 45 seconds. So, so this whole idea of running equipment and machine utilization is something we have to challenge. I was with a client down in Arkansas with the CEO and the CFO of this big company. We're in one of their plants. And I asked the CFO, I said, Hey, how do you pay everybody here in this plant? You know, they, he said, well, everybody here gets measured on machine uptime in utilization. I said, well, geez, why do you do that? Because we paid a lot of money for this equipment and we need to get a money's worth on it. Oh, okay. Now what they were doing was, you know, they weren't changing over to the right model. So they would make A's when they really had orders for B's. 
produce excess inventory. They shorted for calling. They were losing business because their delivery was awful in that regard. And they weren't also shutting down to do preventive maintenance, which had its dire effects as well. So all that together because of one measure, right? Similar to absorption accounting, when I talk about lead accounting, that's kind of what this thing does, right? Along with OE, if it's not used right. Okay, so, so I looked at the CFO and I said, well, let me ask you, I said, you just told me a couple of days ago, you just bought a brand new Lexus. What's this brand new car, right? He goes, yeah. I said, well, you know, that's a good choice. A Toyota product, they're good cars. I said, you paid a lot of money for that car, didn't you? He says, yeah, pretty expensive, but worth it. Yeah, okay. I said, so are you going to go home tonight and drive your car around the block couple hundred times to get utilization out of it. Well, geez, no. why, why would I do that? Why would you do that? I don't know. You're doing it here. Why would you do it at home? Think about it. We run our lives differently. That's another, you know, mindset issue. We run our lives differently than we run our businesses because of the measures and the things we get paid on. So I said, look, if you're not going to do it at home, why are you doing it here? And look at the ill effects that are being caused because you're measuring people on machine, you know, upcoming utilization. And all these dire effects are happening because you're measuring the wrong thing. If you're not going to do it at home, don't do it here. The other notion, and, and let me tell you, I'm a big fan of engineers, but let me tell you, sometimes they're the worst enemies because they love their toys and they love equipment all the lights and bells and whistles and electronics and all that. And one of the things that Nikau would go nuts on, Jahiro Nikau, he would say, you know, just because a piece of equipment is old doesn't mean you need a new one. And the old story, I, I think I write about this in my book, where engineer came up to him and said, Nikau said, we need a new machine. Nikau said, well, why do you need a new machine? We need a new machine because that machine is old. And the cow, you know, through the interpreter said, how old is that machine? And it's 15 years old. He said, 15 years old. How old are you? And the, the engineer said, 32. He goes, 32. Looks like we need a new engineer too, right? And so kind of make the point that just because it's old doesn't mean, you know, it's bad. Now, now there's a tendency to want to apply robotics to something that can be done manually. We think that's a lights out. That's a really good thing to do. And all we do is trade labor for higher technical support and energy and, and parts and maintenance and all that. And then, and by the way, someday I'll have a podcast on automation and equipment and robots and all that stuff. And we'll talk more about those concepts and how they're misused most of the time, but not today. But when I get back to this, uh, you know, engineers like to have this big battleship that Kyle used to call approach to equipment. Rather than small PT boat, flexible, right? The car used to say one operation per machine, small flexible piece of equipment, one operation per machine. So I had a client, which will be unnamed and we had set up a pretty nice little cell. And again, I'm going to make up the numbers here because I don't remember the whole exact math, but let's just, but you'll get the point. We had this cell, let's say there were five machines. And each one was, the tack time for that cell was two minutes. And every machine was running under tack time, right? You know, at tack time or whatever. So that we, our drop-off rate at the end of the cell was, you know, when we loaded it with standard work and operators and all that, 
my drop-off rate was every two minutes. I got a part off. So let's just say the total cycle time for all the equipment was 10 minutes. And I come back a couple months later, I don't know, three or four months later, and Mark, you got to come and see our new machine. Oh boy, what's this all about, right? And you're not going to, so I go down and I see this big battleship machine, right? Replace these five pieces of equipment that we had. And uh, they said, this machine can now do all those operations in five and a half minutes, rather than 10. Like, oh, wow, that's fantastic. I said, how's your second shift doing? How did you know we needed a second shift? I said, you probably need a third shift too, right? Yeah. How did you know? Did your tech time change? Did your volume change? No, didn't change. Well, then you, there's no way you could make tech time on a piece of equipment with a five and a half you know, minute cycle time. Your tech time is two minutes. So these engineers put this thing in without regard for, you know, for tech time or any of that stuff. As a matter of fact, one of the things I'll talk about someday is how to look at a capital appropriation request. I'll do a separate podcast just on that. That's, you know, from a lean perspective, this never would have happened, by the way, because one of the questions I ask on a capital appropriation request is what's the tech time? What is the tech time? And are you going to be able to meet tech time? Amongst a bunch of other questions that I asked, they have nothing to do with dollar signs. Okay. Kind of crazy from an ex-CFO, right? So these battleship concepts and PT boats. And then the other thing, of course, we look at how quickly can we change them over? Single mint exchange to die. How quick is that? And the notion again, going back to the old Ali White MRP principles is that with the economic order quantity model, EOQ, we want to avoid changeovers. We want to get rid of changeovers. Main thinking says, no, you want to do more changeovers because the closer you can match your production schedule with your demand schedule, the faster your lead time, the quicker your lead time, the lower your lead time, and the more flexible and lower inventory you'll have in that regard. So we had a client out in California that was at a, you know, we go changeover on this and, you know, first week we reduced the changeover over 80% in the first week. But th what they were doing up till then was they were, they had 12 parts on that machine that they would make. They'd run part one in week one, changeover on a Saturday, run week two the following, part two the following week, changeover on a Saturday. And this is all regardless of volume, by the way, none of these parts have the same volume. And they were creating all kinds of inventory, sucking up capacity of something they couldn't be making. But they, their whole game was to avoid changeovers. When we got them down over 80% in the first week, and there was a lot more to be had on that, by the way, they did the calculation, the model on this. And I said, you know, you guys can now make all 12 parts every 1.2 days. We got to change over 12 times every, you know, day or so, 1.2 days. Yeah, yeah, you do. Why do you have to do so many changeovers? And I explained, I, you know, what I just explained earlier, you know, the, you know, your customers don't order all part number one in the first week. They ordered everything. They still didn't get it. So I said, okay, well, so again, let's use our daily lives. I said, how many people here have ever had a barbecue in their backyard? Let's say you had 20 people, family, friends, whoever, right? And you're making hot dogs and hamburgers. How many people here would just make the hamburgers first? Nobody raised their hand. 
I'll have a hot dog. Nope. Well, why? And somebody said, well, you know, some of my guests might want a hot dog. Some of them might want hamburgers. If you're like me, I want both. <laughs> okay. So I said, well, that's funny. You're not going to just make hot dogs because there are people sitting there and they're going to watch the guys eat hot dogs while they're waiting to make hamburgers. Yeah. We want them to eat together. Give me a product. Give me a sales order, please. Got the order. And I looked at it of the 12 parts, there were seven of them on this particular order. It sounds like they want hot dogs and hamburgers at the same time. Like I said, one due date on here, one delivery date. So again, bring it back to real life. The more changeovers, the better. Now, when I was in Japan, I did several, you know, maybe a half a dozen study missions over there with Nikau. And I would take, you know, 30 Danaher executives with me at the same time. In fact, on this particular trip, I think Larry Culp was with us. And I'm walking around this one factory, a supplier for Toyota, and they had a bank of injection molding machines. So I asked the, seat, I asked the president, I said, oh, how long does it take to, to change over your injection molding machine? And he said to me, one minute. I said, one minute? And the best I've ever seen was 15, which was uh, a nip and denzel plant in Tennessee, believe it or not. One minute. You gotta be kidding me. I said, well, when are you going to do your next changeover? He said, uh, not until this afternoon, two o'clock. He knew that, by the way, the president knew that. How many presidents out there know when their next changeover is going to? So I go, well, thank you very much. Okay. That's fantastic. He said, Delusio son, would you like to see a changeover? I go, are you kidding me? I'd like to see a changeover. Well, not going to screw you up, is it? No. Brings over his changeover crew. By the way, it's another subject for another day on changeover crews. I get a lot of pushback on that. Dedicated changeover crews. And uh, they did the changeover. And it was 55 seconds. And we all clapped, all 30 of us. They all bowed and took a bow. And then they changed it back. The part that we originally wanted. And it blew me away. And what really blew me away was when the president said to me, thank you for giving us the opportunity to practice our changeover. And I'm like, are you, my jaw almost hit the ground. Are you, I mean, can you imagine going into one of your plants here, maybe in the States and said, Hey, by the way, let me see a changeover. Excuse me. I'm not doing that till next, the week after Thursday, next week. We're not doing a changeover for you. What are you nuts? Get that out of here. Right? They welcome that. So that's a mindset shift. You see what I'm saying? They practice their changeovers and they were able to show off too, which is kind of fun. NASCAR, Indy, Formula One practices their changeovers, changing out tires and all that. Okay. They practice. So this goes back to the notion of having a dedicated team to do changeovers. Okay. Subject for another day, but it is a mindset shift for people because they think, oh, I'm going to ex spend extra cost on a changeover crew. Oh yeah, but you're not calculating the cost of screwing up your changeover and elongating that to whatever it's going to be. All right. Different mindset. So one of the other mindset shifts that again, the cow in particular could not get over the Lucio son, how could you run a second shift? without the same support that you have on the first shift. Maintenance, we had one maintenance guy at night that maybe didn't know all that much. We uh, wouldn't put engineering, manufacturing engineering on second shift. We had these dumb excuses. Oh, we can't get anybody to work those shifts, you know? No, we just thought second shift was like, it's just gonna run itself. 
It never did. It always was one of those shifts that never performed, but we ran it differently and our quality was worse on second shift, right? So, you know, they couldn't understand from a mindset perspective, why would you run a factory? If you don't need them, when the cow said, if you don't need them at night on second shift, don't need them the other day. Fire them all. Oh, we can't do that. I mean, why can't you? Okay. You see the mindset we're talking about? So this is how they think. And again, it just kind of flies in the face of what we're used to. Now I talked about defects and how do you define a defect, right? And all that one, there's two things they couldn't understand as well, which again, our mindset. So a lot of our factories had, you know, we're going to plan on 95% on time delivery. And they looked at that like, well, what do you mean? Why are you planning on 95% on time delivery? Well, because we're at 80 right now when we got to get better. Well, why are you planning on failing 5% of the time? Iwata told me, God rest his soul. Iwata says, why, why are you failing? Why do you plan on that? Why don't you call the customers now and tell them that you're going to be late, those 5%. Tell them now in advance so they can plan for it. Why are you planning to fail? Well, because if we did 100%, we'll demoralize everybody. Really? So that's a leadership issue and how you communicate that, right? And that was our dumb excuse. We can't demoralize everybody for asking to fulfill our customer requirements 100% of the time. And you put it that way, you kind of scratch your head and say, wow, that doesn't make sense, does it? That we would plan on failing. The other one they couldn't understand is Six Sigma. 3.4 parts per million defect. Again, I think it was Iwata that said to me, why are you planning to have defect? And why do you consider 3.4 parts per million good? I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense that you're planning on having defects, right? Mindset shift. Total mindset shift. By the way, when I posted this on LinkedIn, all these engineers and all these self-anointed lean gurus got back to me and told me all the technical reasons why we couldn't have zero defects. They gave me all the reasons. They gave me all the, you know, technical reasons why you couldn't do it and tolerances. And they gave me graphs and they gave me charts and all that. They failed to understand is that we're talking mindset here. Mindset. Effort, I went over and said, well, you know, if you have, if the airline flew at Six Sigma, we'd have a crash every three days. Somewhere in the world, we'd have a crash. Well, that's different. Really? Flying a jet engine, a jet airplane is different and more complicated than, let's look around here, making a pen. You make pens for a living and you can't do that 100% of the time correctly. Like we can fly a jet engine 100% of the time correctly for the most part. Okay. Give me a break, right? It's mindset. So that's what we got to think about. The other thing was statistical process control. It's part of Six Sigma, you know, and we're all trained on it. And we had a cell that we were setting up at Jake Break. Was it Jake Break? Well, whatever it was. And it was a water again. And he said to me, I don't understand. You're checking one out of 15 parts. Oh yeah. Oh, geez. Let me explain to you SPC. Like you didn't know. Right. And, and I said, well, here's what we do. You know, we check one and you know, 
The notion known, the principle is that you should not let a defect pass to the next process or the customer, if you will, if you have an assured quality. So he said, what about the other 14? Oh, you don't understand what the sun. If they're within the control limits, and I went through the whole SPC jargon, right? Those your son, he said, you do not know if those 14 parts are good. He said, you should assure quality with Pokio. He said, but, and I argued again, right? By the way, I've never won an argument with Shingajitsu, never. And it came a point where Art Byrne, George Conesaker, we all sat down and said, if they tell us to put our head through the wall, we're just going to put our head through the wall because we're just going to listen to what they have to say, right? Rather than fight them and tell them why their brilliance and their excellence that they were managed to put together as founders of the Toyota production system was no longer valid because we're different, right? So anyway, Iwata said to me, Delizio-san, would you fly an airline on an airline that only checks one out of 15 airplanes. And right there, he had me. I said, no, no, I wouldn't do that. Right. Well, then Delizio son, why are you doing it here? Okay. You see the mindset, These are just mindset issues, right? Common sense. SPC makes all the sense in the world to most engineers. Makes all the sense in the world. No, am I advocating that you should throw away your SPC program today? Cause of what I just said, no, you got to work your way into that's all you got right now. You've got to stick with it, but you've got to work your way into building quality into the process, either through your design and or your production. So I'm not advocating that you just throw that out today, but change your mindset about it. Change your mindset about zero defect. The last thing I want to talk about is inventory. Inventory, you know, there was a book written by Dr. Robert Hall years ago way long time ago, I think in the eighties called zero inventories. Well, can you imagine, think about your daily life. Think about, did you go to the grocery store recently? What if you had zero inventory there? What if the car lots at Toyota or Ford or Chevy had zero inventory on the lot? So taking inventory out of the system is like taking all your blood out of your body. You're going to die. You need inventory, but the point is you need the right inventory that you say should be there based on your standards. And then obviously you want to get better with lead time and with quality and with all the disruptions and all that, where you could take that inventory down over time. Right. But this whole notion of zero inventory is crazy. And it was again, father of the Toyota production system that said, the more inventory you have the less likely you will have what you need. And it's so true. I remember that, well, that company that I told you about with the changeover, they were turning inventory 1.8 times. They had more than six months worth of inventory on hand, but they recorded eight week, week times for their customers. So I stood in front of the group and I said, guys, I got a question for you. I said, if you have six months worth of inventory, why are you quoting? eight weeks. I know the answer. And they sat there and just kind of looked at me. Finally, some brave soul in front of the CEO said, because we have the wrong inventory. Bingo. They were producing for the sake of production, 
They had an absorption accounting system that gave them all the credit in the world for making all this inventory and deferring their costs into the balance sheet. Again, subject for another day when we get into uh, lean accounting. But uh, that's one measure I would highly recommend you get rid of today, right? Um, amongst others, which we'll talk about some other day. But they had all this inventory on hand, but they were quoting eight weekly times. So zero inventory is a misconception. As a matter of fact, in some cases, I'll say, hey, look, you need to put inventory in to service the customer. And again, you're a lean guy, Mark. You're asking to put inventory in. Yeah, you know, I mean, your overall inventory investment is going to go down, but you need to put inventory in here and here. A good example is a company that I worked with that was making wheelchairs. They made two types of wheelchairs. One type of wheelchair you see all the time in airports and hospitals is a standard classic, nothing fancy. They're all the same type of wheelchairs. For some reason, they're all blue. Okay. Those are classic stock keeping units. And then you've got the special wheelchairs that are so unique. If you needed one, God help you or me, it would be a unique one in the world. Nobody else would order the same wheelchair. Matter of fact, this company made Christopher Reeves wheelchair. Remember Superman, Christopher Reeves, the actor fell off a horse and was paralyzed and they made his wheelchair. Well, Christopher Reeves wheelchair was very specific to Christopher Reeves. All the different options he could have picked, his height, his weight, his width, his length of his legs, his back, his torso, all unique. As a matter of fact, you have to get a prescription from a physical therapist to get a wheelchair like this. And there's no way that you can keep a stock keeping unit, finished goods inventory in these kind of wheelchairs because they're one, one, and, one and done, right? But the other ones you could. So I said, look, you've got to split your value. They're making the, both wheelchairs types of wheelchairs in the same line, you need to split that value stream up and have a pull system with a finished goods inventory of your common parts. You're only like six or seven stock keeping units of finished wheelchairs on the hospital airport side. And then the Christopher Rees wheelchair, those are different. So in one case, I could actually have the order come into assembly and it would pull all the way through from fab all the way through paint and all the way through and all the subcomponents. And on the other hand, I had to have that order come into the fab area because the identity of the wheelchair took its place there. So I couldn't pull from a stock, for example, because those were very special requirements for that particular wheelchair. And I went through paint and all that. We used fightful lanes, by the way, it's another subject for another day because fightful lanes get miscommunicated and misused all the time. But on that special order wheelchair line, we use fightful lanes and all that. So, so the whole idea that, you know, I'm getting back to inventory here where I told them you need to put a finished goods inventory in for your standard wheelchairs with a pull system that would drive, you know, your pull system all the way through. And they said to me, well, you're asking us to put inventory in. I said, yeah, I am. Right. For, I mean, for the classic airport slash hospital type wheelchairs. Yes. But don't treat the production systems the same for both types of wheelchairs. And it was a mind boggling thing for them because it's like, here's a lean guy coming and he kind of says, he knows what he's talking about. And he's asking us to put some inventory in this case. And I think that was the right thing to do. Now, obviously the better you get with lead times and all that kind of stuff, you could take that inventory down. No question about it. So again, this whole concept of zero inventory is wrong. You have to service the customer. Now think about inventory, go back to safety, quality, delivery, and cost. Think about inventory as a cost item and 
you know, I'm not saying you're going to be done with inventory and just throw a bunch of inventory in for the sake of inventory, but delivery is more important than cost if you believe in the SQDC mantra. So I'm going to have inventory to protect my, my, my customers. Now, when I get out of standard, I might need safety stock. Now, the interesting thing about this, and I saw this at Toyota on the production floor, they had safety stock over to the side. And I said, geez, what's that over there? Had a big red banner around it and a red tape on the floor and a sign on it that was written in kanji, so I didn't know what it said. They told me that sign said, this is safety stock inventory because our process, blah, 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 was defective, was not reliable. And this inventory is planned on going away by a certain date. So they recognized the deviation from their standard amount of inventory, identified it, and had a plan in place visibly that says this is going to go away. Even Toyota uses safety stock when they need to because they're going to protect the customer. They do believe in the SQDC mantra in that regard. Okay. I think you'll see here that as we wrap up, there are many things that lean isn't all that common sense, right? I mean, that's what we're really saying here. Lean isn't all that common sense. When you get right down, you have to change your mindset, I guess. Maybe it's a better way to say it. Because the mindsets that we all grew up with and got us successful are not necessarily the mindsets we're going to need to successfully transform our company. Anyway, we'll close it there. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to the Lean 911 podcast. I'll be happy to address your questions or feedback on future episodes. Email me at mark at lean911.com. You can check out our other episodes by visiting our website at lean911.com, our YouTube channel, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your host, Mark DeLuzio. Thanks for listening.